Good morning, and once again, it is a privilege to take to the pulpit here at Beargrass Christian Church. I want to extend my thanks to the staff who have forfeited this time and allowed me to take their stead in this moment of preparation for stewardship for this congregation in a time of decision. It has been a real privilege for me to have this opportunity to be with you, and I am so grateful for it. I am reminded uh, on this occasion of a young preacher who was wanting to teach the importance of living a pure and godly life as a way to get into heaven. And so on a Sunday morning, he had prepared three glass bowls and uh, had some, some things with him as the congregation observed. And, and the first thing he did was he, he took some cigarette butts and some ashes and put them in the bowl and then added some earthworms. And it didn't take long before the earthworms died. He then took the second bowl and he poured some white lightning in it. And again, dropping a few earthworms in it, it didn't take long before they were dead. And then he put some fresh topsoil into the last bowl and he added the worms to that. And boy, they were happy and they seemed to be just fine. And he looked at the congregation and he said, what can we learn from this? There was silence for a while and then finally someone said from the back, well, you need to smoke or drink or you're going to get worms. <laughs> you know, sometimes being subtle doesn't always work. And scripture, well, it can be pretty direct sometimes and in giving us uh, an evaluation on assessing systems and societies and individuals, the text can be difficult. And truth be told, most pastors in churches like ours want to steer clear from some of these passages, especially at stewardship time. I mean, any philanthropist worth their salt would tell you that the last thing you want to do when it's time to ask people for money is to make them mad. And yet, here we are with some texts this morning that have the, 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 it, the ability, to, if not to make us mad, to at least make us uncomfortable, right? A judging God. Now, I, most of us are pretty happy with the idea of God as the shepherd, the good shepherd, Jesus as the shepherd. Think about those passages in the First Testament where... Uh, where God as the, as the good shepherd associates that with green pastures and still waters and safety and protection and no need to fear even in the face of death itself. Those are nice texts. I like those texts. Being a sheep isn't so bad in those texts. I, I think of when I was a youngster growing up in the, in the church that I was raised in, in our education wing, there was a picture of Jesus kind of a white middle-class Jesus, but it was Jesus. You could tell it was Jesus. And he had around his shoulders a solitary lamb, and he was walking back toward the flock. Who doesn't like an image of Jesus as the one who seeks out the lost sheep? The 99 may not have been very happy for a while while the shepherd was gone, but if you're that lost sheep, that's a good deal. I like those stories, but this story of, of God sorting out sheep 
or Jesus as the cosmic ruler coming back on the clouds with a train of angels behind him sorting folks out. I'm not really big on those texts, <laughs> right? I mean, after all, the church should be the first place you go when you're broken and you have nothing left and you need to be loved. Instead, it's often the last place people go because they're afraid of being judged, of being rejected, of being excluded. And yet, at the same time, there is this tension because I kind of like the idea of there being a cosmic scorekeeper out there who is taking note of all the times I've been wronged, all the times where I've gotten a raw deal, you know, and, and that somewhere, sometimes, someone is going to make it right. That assumes that you're the one who's been wronged <laughs> and who's gotten the raw deal. In this story of, from Ezekiel of, of, the, of the thin sheep and the fat sheep, well, it makes me uncomfortable, okay? God is saying that the fat sheep are in trouble because they have used their horns and their sharp shoulders and elbows, if you will, to keep others from getting what they need. They have, they have hoarded it all for themselves. And all I can think about in this moment is a bag of Cheetos and what I'm like if I'm holding one. <laughs> now, now my, my doctor would say I'd had enough before I ever put my hand in the bag. But, you know, I, I take some and then I take some more and, and Laura, my wife, is sitting next to me and she's trying to reach for them and I might casually just turn a little bit the other way so I can have a few more. You know, you can never have enough. That, that's the problem. It, it's, the sheep thing is sort of a metaphor for so many things in our life, including money. Lynn Twist writes in her book, The Soul of Money, if you, if you can ever let go of trying to get more of what you don't need, then you can pay attention to what you already have and you can share. But that's hard. Because there are some things it just seems we can never get enough of. And, and, and when we have a lot, we still feel like a little more wouldn't be a bad idea. And that's a problem. Walter Brueggemann writes that affluence can lead to amnesia. You know, this was Joshua's great fear when the people were entering the land of milk and honey. They might forget the intimate nature of God's provision, that we might forget the source of our blessings, that we might begin to depend on our stuff instead of God, that we would get confused and forget that it wasn't all ours, that it might isolate us from each other as we sought to keep what we had. The reality that money and our stuff can't save us it shouldn't define us, and yet most everything we do in our culture is influenced by money. We use money to define our reality. We swim in a culture of money. The very thing that was invented as a facilitator for the community's benefit has somehow become the same thing that marginalizes us. We define people as poor, instead of their circumstances 
as poor. Worse yet, we make assumptions about them that somehow they have created their own conditions. Maybe they deserve the way they are forced to live. We assume that maybe they're lazy or unintelligent or worth just undeserving. There was a little Facebook post that went around and hit my page among many others following the election and it made me a little bit angry. It was supposed to be funny, but, but what it said was, now do we get all of our free stuff or do we have to quit our jobs first? We have trouble imagining the poor as whole or complete within themselves, don't we? We often fail to see their courage, their character, and their depth in the midst of what for most of us would be unfathomable difficulties. The rich don't want to be defined by their portfolios. They would tell you they are more than their trust funds or the price of their stock, and the poor are the same. They are more than the conditions in which they find themselves. And sometimes, sometimes we are moved with compassion when we see them and we want to help. But to be truthful, at other times when we see the plight of the poor, we realize that given certain circumstances, we might not be far from them. And so we back up and we hold a little tighter to what we have. Twist in her book goes on to make it clear that the money culture in which we live is a lie. That it's toxic, that that we have given money more value than life itself, and it has produced another kind of slavery, a little bit different from Egypt's pharaoh's slavery, but, but the creation of new pharaohs who seek to own us in an economy that is based on indebtedness. We talk about making a killing, and indeed that's exactly what some things are doing to our planet. It marginalizes the poor either by working them in impossible life-crushing circumstances or by simply taking away their land and their resources. Money has become more important than faith itself. There are many who admit, as they were giving exit poll information after the election, that they were concerned about the tone of Washington, but in the same breath they said, the economy is good and my 401k is doing great, so I guess we can tolerate more than we might otherwise. There's almost a sense of resignation that this is the way it is and we are powerless individually to do anything about it. And here's where we begin to see what we are really fighting for here and where these texts poke at us and seek to wake us up and make us more alive because we realize that we are fighting indifference here, that we are fighting that collective action shirking that says, well, if you're not going to step up, why should I? And it makes us unwilling to sacrifice for the common good, you know, if we don't believe that other people are working as hard for it as we are. Community action and mutual support matter. They remind us that we are not in this alone. 
And there is a dark character to that self-sufficiency we can own when we are doing pretty well and we don't think we need others. It's one of those tough things that we as stewards must fight against. Because the reality is, is that none of us make it on our own and it's a lie to suggest otherwise. The world was created to be interdependent and so are we. And we cannot live well fully apart from one another. The social community depends on a variety of skills and intellects in order to thrive, as does the church. Many gifts and fruits of the Spirit build up the whole body, where self-sufficiency leads to self-interest. It undermines community. It causes us to be indifferent to the needs of others. And you see, that's that's where things come home in the text we had this morning, especially in Matthew's gospel, because on the surface, the goats didn't do anything wrong, right? They just didn't do anything. They didn't, they didn't commit some terrible sin. They just, they just did nothing. And that's the problem, says Jesus that for all of our freedom in the gospel and grace, there also comes responsibility. That in Christ we are free, and yet we are mutually accountable for the health and well-being of the whole. And, And we need to guard again here against the transactional versus the transformational, because we might be tempted to look at this and say, well, if I see a poor person in need and I give him a sandwich, then I get into heaven. You know, I've, I've, I've done my part of the contract. What Jesus is pushing for here, what God in the, in, through the prophet Ezekiel is begging for us to see is that this is about transformation. This is a moment of defining our reality anew that in every person you see, you see a child of God. In every person you see, you see the face of Jesus. In every moment, you have the opportunity not only to serve Christ, but to bring the values of the realm of God into reality. To experience a foretaste of what it means when we pray each week. Let it be on earth as it is in heaven. You see, it is to love for love's sake and only for the sake of love. We are not independent contractors when it comes to the practice of faith. We are not compensated at the final judgment solely by the merits of our own personal piety, this text suggests. That while grace is an operative word, it is not simply reward or failure based on our mental assent to confess that Jesus is Lord and Savior. Because to truly accept Jesus, to truly accept Jesus as Lord and Savior is to engage the world in the way that Jesus did. And by doing so, thus actually proclaim him as such through our actions rather than our words. Spirituality is not private. It always has a public dimension in the formation impacts how we behave in community and live with others. 
The question of the gospel is, does it make us more aware? The question of being a part of the church is, does it call us to advocacy on the behalf of others? Does it set in motion not simply the desire for the world to be different, but the willingness to act to make it so? Are we angry enough about injustice, disturbed enough about suffering, that we cannot find rest and peace until these things are made right in the world? In the end, the gospel says, love wins. It's why it is the greatest of the three that Paul lists in 1 Corinthians 13, 13, where we have been speaking and talking for the last two weeks now week three faith hope and love but the greatest of these is love it's the greatest because it is ultimately what lasts and our willingness to engage in that with the human community is what makes all the difference 